go beyond outdated public health advice and dietary fads and increase your sovereignty and intuition in knowing what is the most suitable and supportive nutritional routine for you. Welcome to the Vital Veda Show. I'm your host, Dylan Smith. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner and holistic health educator, as well as someone who is recognizing that there's a lot of confusion in this current day of age with many people around nutrition and diet and what should I eat? What should I do? There's dietary fads and on every corner, there's all these uh, overload of information and various levels and, and schools of thought that perhaps contradict with each other or confuse furthermore. So we do a lot of this in Vital Veda and that's what Ayurvedic medicine, which is the science of life, a, a very foundational traditional science, which nutrition is a big part, intends to do is to empower you to know that every single person is different, where you live in the world is different, the time that you're living in, the age you are in, what current physiology you have, your diseases, all these things make nutritional plan and advice and a way of living it's really not should not be like a plan i need to plan my nutrition it's really a way of living and beautiful nourishment day to day it should be unique for you and you're different to everyone so that's what we do in Ayurveda. and today we've got steph Lowe as well to shed light on that from a nutritional point of view because after many years of darkness and a life lacking purpose that almost led her to the pharmaceutical intervention steph had a powerful awakening she understood that one's contribution to the human experience is where true growth and healing lies. So since practicing as a nutritionist in 2011, she's never been happier and healthier. In addition to mentoring health practitioners, Steph runs The Natural Nutritious and is the host of a popular podcast, Health, Happiness and Humankind. By combining her signature pillars of health, happiness and consciousness, Steph is transforming lives all over the globe. And your life can be transformed if it already isn't, or if it already is, I'm sure it is being transformed, but to enhance with this knowledge. And that's what we're going to get into. We talk about busting myths, really nutritional myths about conventional diets and in the nutritional space in general, about pregnancy and nutritional advice. We talk about eating disorders and fasting for women, why it's different. There's so many aspects. So hope you enjoy. Check out the Vital Veda podcast, more episodes on this show. We've got goodness you know, we interview people on the worlds of health, spirituality, of consciousness. So there's a lot of things. And I just want to let you know, one other aspect you can learn from us besides this podcast, well, a few. One is Instagram. We post kind of more regularly. But if you want a real deep, a bit more detailed, a bit more deeper insight into the Vital Veda community, sign up to our newsletter. Just go to vitalveda.com.au. At the top, you'll see a newsletter bar. And there you'll be notified with special offers like where you know me as a practitioner or my partner as a practitioner if we're traveling and offering Ayurvedic therapies or uh, consultations in person or, or over the world of course we do it full-time online we mainly do consultations in optimizing people's health from all levels whether it's preventative approach or you want to address some imbalance or, or I see that there's an imbalance but as well as that the Vital Veda newsletter will give you a bit more detailed knowledge every fortnight or so and and as well as if there's any special offers from a herbal dispensary or anything like that so check out the vital veda newsletter sign up on vitalveda.com.au so hope you enjoy the show and by the way listen to the end you might see something cool so steph loath welcome to the vital veda podcast so glad to have you and so glad to 
have this mutual friend and connection with our friend Emma Maidman and just someone who's really true to themselves and authentic in what they believe in terms of their health and their sovereignty and was very excited for you to join the show and we're very excited so thanks for coming. Yeah, amazing. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to today's conversation and I always tell Emma how much she inspires me. So, yes, a bit of a mutual love there for her. (laughs) So the first question we ask all our guests is, in Ayurvedic medicine, which I I don't know, how how much do you know about Ayurveda? Uh, I I don't teach it per se, Mm. but I've done... You know, I've done a lot of work in it in terms of my yoga background and my own like 200-hour training and things like that. But it's not something I practice in every day with a natural nutritionist. That's cool. But mm-hmm. the, you've been exposed to it. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, one important aspect you would know is, is what we call dinacharya and your daily routine. So I'd love to know what you did today into a however much detail as you'd like. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm a big fan of moving first thing. So that's like my priority when I wake up. You know, some people choose to meditate or what have you, whereas for me what works best is to usually get outside and do some kind of movement. So this morning was a walk and I listened to a podcast. <laughs> um, some morning. What did you listen to? <laughs> uh, this morning I was listening to The Drive by Peter Atia, his latest sort of um, COVID-19 <laughs> summary, <laughs> which I can't nice. help myself but follow Staying along. Staying up to date with some science. Yeah, Real of course. Science. <laughs> of course. It drives good. Yeah. And other mornings it's um, yoga and I've been doing a little bit of F45. But, yeah, my routine is usually movement and then home to hang out with my babes and have brekkie get started into mum life really. <laughs> Beautiful. So you, you're quiet uh, – yeah, you're, you're doing really good stuff in Australia and beyond and sharing just yeah, breaking down the science of nutrition and dispelling myths, which I love to dispel myths, <laughs> and just getting just really to a primal aspect of the knowledge. So how did you get into this? How did you get into becoming this full-time nutritionist and educator? Yeah, what's yeah. your journey? Yeah, it is quite a long story that starts back when I was a teenager carrying a little bit of extra puppy fat and having the challenges of entering high school and noticing that um, my appearance was a little bit different to some of the other um, girls at the time and it created a lot of sort of what I can see now is, you know, mental health issues but I thought that losing weight was going to be the solution to what was undiagnosed depression at the time so I lost 20 kilos and was still really unhappy. <laughs> Funny that. Um, my mum was, of course, quite worried and she took me off to, to a dietitian. And I'm not a dietitian, but I distinctly remember that appointment being in the office. That was where the first seed was planted. I was like, oh, I can't believe this is her job. She gets to sit here and talk to me about food. So the seed was planted, but I went on my own journey working in the health space. I have actually an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology and I've been a Pilates instructor and worked in gyms and things like that and what I call my past life. But I was still suffering with my own health challenges and I met someone who encouraged me to go gluten-free. Now, this is over 15 years ago when I wasn't trained as a nutritionist and I certainly didn't even really know what gluten was, but I was so desperate to try something that wasn't medication that I was willing to try anything. And for me personally, it was night and day, the contrast between 
eating gluten, obviously coming off a low-fat diet and restrictive eating and calorie counting without adequate fuel for your hormones and your brain. Like I'm not saying that gluten was the the panacea, but what it did for me was teach me firsthand the healing power of food and it quickly became my mantra, which is just eat real food or jerf as we say. I was so inspired by how different I felt that I knew I had to get those qualifications to be able to teach other people the same. So I went back to do my postgraduate studies in nutrition in 2009 and started my business, The Natural Nutritionist, in 2011. And the rest is history, as they say. But as you said, I've been busting myths since then. And now I take on a role of really trying to create clarity around what the research says, but make it really practical for my clients and my wider audience. And my number one value around that is transparency, which I think is why I've got myself involved with our current global situation, because there's been so many areas where there has been a lack of transparency and and fear over facts that I tend to be in this space where I want to present the data so we can do the opposite, so we can have facts instead of fear. Yeah, just clarity and removing this fear and confusion. Just saying, guys, this come back to the simple (laughs) scientific which is so correlated with your own intuition and self and so even just guiding people through various whether it's talk about this aspect of nutrition or talk about this aspect of immunity i guess having that practice and just learning from you for example on that topic it, it enhances one's ability to be able to decipher themselves for their future different topics and different stimuli and parts of knowledge which they come through so i just love that yeah keep reiterating this is how we do it this is kind of the the process just facts listen to yourself Mm. implement yeah really nice so you that was clearly you it's i love how you've used nutrition or how you used nutrition to heal your mental state and i would love to just touch on eating disorders because you know whether you, it doesn't seem like you had one to, to a certain extent or to a, a perhaps more dangerous extent, which, which I'm sure we both see in, in clients. Um, but it's, and I want to also ask because you mentor women and I see this so common where for me it's, it's one of the more complex conditions that I treat in my clinic. And interestingly, particularly in women and these women, they, they go on to study nutrition and, it's, and, and become or dietitian. And it's part of that perhaps obsession of food. And a big one you just mentioned, which you used to do is count calories. I mean, just mm. before you, I had patients who were like, I, of course, I ask every patient what they eat in detail. And they're like, 600 calories for dinner and 300 calories for lunch. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, I want to explore this mindset, which people like who have eating disorders can be in and kind of present uh, perhaps what you were liberated, how you were liberated or, or throughout your experience of being not so specific, strict, and I guess more having more flow in food choices mm. and mental state is very much correlated with that. Yeah, it is interesting that you say that. So I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I absolutely had disordered eating, right? Like I I share a lot of this, so I'm not like not concerned with what it might sound like now because I'm like it's like another lifetime ago. 
But, you know, I would do things like count out the numbers of almonds I would eat. I would only have eight at a time. I can literally still tell you the calorie count of most common foods because I used to carry around that um, pocket calorie counter with me and, you know, I carried that with me for a long time and you can see why people want to um, teach health but the challenge is, and I think you do learn that when you start working with patients or clients with real-life humans, health isn't found in the extremes. It is found in the grey. And, of course, you know, there are things that I choose not to eat, but I actually don't force that personal sort of ethos on my clients. Like I don't need my client to eat like how exactly I eat, but we're looking for a focus on what we do most of the time, not what we do every once in a while. And I think having that healthy relationship with food is really important. So I would hope that someone with a history of an eating disorder would reach that realisation before they started trying to teach others because it's not a sustainable and healthy way to live long-term. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, just... And and that, I want to talk more about the, even that notion of counting calories mm. and counting. It's it's giving this ungrounded energy to a certain aspect of nutrition and nourishment, which which shouldn't be there. It, nutrition and nourishment, when you're nourishing yourself, it should be enjoyable and it should be somewhat without thought. <laughs> it's just like it's slight intention. I'm hungry. It's meal time. This is the rhythm that I'm in. I'm going to nourish myself and do it in a, I guess, kind of like a mindful way. <laughs> like they say, mindful eating, mindless eating, like mm. m- mindful, but without the intellect and that over analytical. So just, just, yeah, dropping that can liberate someone from having that flight or fight sympathetic nervous system activated while you're eating and just enjoy. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a it's a real cultural thing as well. Like that's probably one of the biggest myths that we have to dispel around that, you know, obviously all calories aren't equal and understanding more about physiology and the nervous system and the big picture when we look at holistic health rather than dispelling food down to a very, I guess, insular energy value because everyone knows the comparison between 100 calories of plants and 100 calories of lollies like obviously they're not a direct comparison so when we move away from that and start to look at things like nutrient density or we talk about food with the lowest degree of human interference the highest degree of nutrient density this beautiful inverse relationship that we should be striving for rather than a western culture which looks for quick fix which is essentially unfortunately high degrees of human interference and as a result a low degree of nutrient density so we're not nourishing ourselves whereas obviously when we can step back and have a look at what our body needs and what food should actually look like in its natural whole food state that's a really powerful part of the journey because you know again it's stepping away for a lot of us what we've known our whole life in a Western kind of food pyramid style household. Yeah, I love love your acronym, JERF. Just <laughs> eat real food. It's like, I know you feel like in a consult, it's like that's it, that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's one of my 
Like when I'm in a consult, people are like expecting this meal plan for, with me personally. I'm just like, mm-hmm. I eat unprocessed whole foods, try eat warm foods, make lunch the biggest meal of the day, mm-hmm. and eat whatever's local and seasonal. It's simple. And like, but what food should I avoid? Microwave foods, cold foods, leftovers, like dead mm-hmm. food. Like th- that's that's it. Or it's food-like not, products, rather. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just the simplicity of it, which I think people sh- sh- is what nutrition should deserve and and nourishment, and um, yeah. So I want to also bring up I've heard you speak about, which is very interesting. So you're a proponent of fasting, as am I. I mean, in Ayurveda, there's a saying, "Langana parama oshadam," which means langana means light, like lightening therapy, which is essentially fasting. And para is like supreme and oshadam means medicine. So it says fasting is the best medicine. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, it's, it's one intervention, but it is very powerful, very, very powerful metabolic intervention, particularly for things like cancer. But of course, like you just mentioned earlier, is everyone is different. You don't suggest to your clients to eat what you eat and it's so different where they're at, where they are in the world. But... What I what's really interesting, which 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 I've never really considered much, is fasting for women, mm. and because they have these different cycles and rhythms, they have the gift, the beautiful gift of their menstrual cycle. So, of course, yeah, I'd, I'd love you to speak on that because it's it's such a. And there, I just want to also say that there's so many different levels of fasting. That's mm. what people need to know in so many different stages, and that's really important to to do what's appropriate for you and what's comfortable. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because fasting does has become a bit of a dirty word and that's because I think it, it conjures up this hardcore water fast for seven days or something that it, I, I think can work for some people but isn't certainly one where you'd start or too appropriate for everyone. So the thing is about fasting is we all fast. Unless you're waking up in the middle of the night to snack regularly, <laughs> which is obviously, you know, very rare, um, you're fasting. So most people would be getting, I hope, about 12 hours. Let's just use the example of having dinner by finishing at 7 p.m. and having breakfast the next day at 7 a.m. Most people would do that even some days of the week. And if they're not, well, we can talk to them about really subtle adjustments at either end of the day where they're starting with a 12-hour fast. And that's beautiful, like you said, for the healing, the digestive reset. Obviously, we know about autophagy, but that starts to look at sort of 16 hours and beyond. So we're not talking about that in this sense. But I can't tell you the number of people that come to me with some sort of a digestive issue, you know, IBS, which I don't like as a label per se, but those kind of symptoms, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, what might look like food intolerances that are really driven by that imbalanced ecosystem, the number of people that almost completely resolve their symptoms by extending their overnight fast and then decreasing their meal frequency, so stopping the constant snacking which circles back to what we were talking about with sort of the diet culture. And as a nutritionist, you obviously can't escape weight loss because, you know, that's part of who you would work with to a degree. Um, Almost everyone has been told to, quote, unquote, eat every two hours to speed up their metabolism. It drives me crazy because it clearly shows that there is no understanding of metabolism if you're trying to make someone eat that often. 
and it creates this vicious cycle where perpetuates digestive issues, perpetuates our obsession with food. Like I remember sitting there looking at the clock, waiting for two hours to tick over so I could eat again. You can't have a healthy relationship with food if it consumes your every waking thought. You know, I think we have to come back and really understand what we're defining. So when we say fasting, what are we actually defining? Well, it's that overnight break. And I think 12 hours is the minimum and women of menstrual cycle age can really thrive if they also do 14 hours overnight, which then gives them a 10-hour eating window. There are some women of menstrual cycle age that might do 16, but that's not my standard recommendation. It's certainly for those that are a bit more experienced that have that monthly report card of a balanced menstrual cycle with little to no symptoms. Um, But, yeah, I think it's a scope and I think it's a beautiful practice that everyone can be doing to some degree. So, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, like I said I want to reiterate, we've got food on every corner, like coffee shops. We've got our pantry easily accessible. Like there's no doubt that as a culture these days, we're eating too much. And kind of my first fasting is like, and so it's so much about steps. Like definitely you don't just jump to a water Mm. fast. I I tell people when you fast, you should be metabolically comfortable with it. Like I fast once a week. I do whatever, whatever I do, it's, it's easy for me. It's it's all part of my rhythm. My digestive system knows it. And the first thing I'm like, stop snacking. Like three meals a day, no snacks. Just fast in between meals. Mm. That's a big one. And then, then you can work on extending your overnight fast. And so with the menstrual cycle, you're saying for people, who, for young women who are menstruating or younger to to perhaps not fast so much. I mean, what, what are the differences that a, that a woman should consider Is it throughout the stages of their cycle of the month that they should maybe adjust their fasting schedule or their eating schedule? How does it work? Yeah, for sure. So firstly, I think we need to look at what the baseline is. So the baseline needs to be that you already have a healthy menstrual cycle, which unfortunately is not that common. Like the number of people who think that PMS or premenstrual syndrome is normal because it's common is quite astounding. So there are women who live for sometimes half of a month, more often one week, so a quarter of their month with a significant list of symptoms that they're tolerating because their girlfriends are also having some symptoms and we're not having this discussion about it's not normal to have those symptoms. You can have a period almost by surprise with no PMS, with no cravings, bloating, fluid retention, weight gain, moodiness, you know. It's possible but we, we, one, haven't spoken about it in our generation because periods have been taboo until more recent years. And two, we have so much in our environment that we're having to tolerate in terms of the xenoestrogens and, you know, the toxins and the food supply and the water supply and the stress and the evolutionary mismatch that we have between you know, how fast human ha- humans have evolved, that we just don't see enough women with a healthy menstrual cycle. So really a lot of them shouldn't be doing anything more than, say, what is intuitive. Definitely 12 hours and, of course, if sort of 14 suits them, but you would end that conversation there and the priority is obviously then going to be focusing on root cause, so what is causing the hormonal issue. And then in a female who who is experienced 
experiencing that beautiful monthly report card where her cycle is very balanced, well, of course, she would have a lot more flexibility. And if you are then going to experiment with a little bit more fasting, well, of course, your follicular phase is going to be a better time of the month to experiment. So day one is the first day that you bleed up until ovulation, which you can identify by cervical mucus or that rise in your basal body temperature if you are doing some home monitoring. So those first two weeks roughly um, could be a time where you experiment with fasting. But the thing is about fasting is it is, of course, caloric restriction. So that's where we need to be mindful because not that we're all here to have babies, but, you know, obviously having a normal ovulation and a normal period is presenting your fertility. And if you're taking food away, your body may interpret that as there's not enough energy for a baby right now. So even if that wasn't your goal, it can take your hormones offline. So we do need to be mindful. Now, one day here and there, like once a month or something like that, obviously isn't going to continually send that message, but continually extending your fast beyond what's suitable for you can obviously change that communication with the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland and the adrenals and that intricate system that we have. So it's kind of a long answer, but, you know, with men, you know, you can go away and eat zero calories for a couple of days and, and if you're healthy, well, it would only be positive. But it's a really different experience for women of menstrual cycle age. So, of course, post-menopausal women have a lot more freedom with their fasting as well. Yeah, it's, that's beautiful. So the second half of the month for women, it's, it's like they've just ovulated, they potentially have conceived. So that's why they need that nutrients and energy is that right and if they don't get that the body's like oh you need to protect this fetus that you're about to create yeah we certainly i mean the research is interesting if you look at the data um obviously to take a step back for a second women haven't really been studied unfortunately it's been seen as inconvenient to have a menstrual cycle from a clinical trial point of view which is horrific to say but that's essentially why we have so much information about men and fasting and lots of other interventions because it's quite simple to study. And then, of course, we've realised that we have to be studying women so we understand how interventions are going to impact them. But I don't think enough research has been done. So some people look at the data and just say, no, nah, there's no difference between follicular and lateal, don't change anything. But in my clinical experience, there's just too many anecdotes of vast differences in how we respond to the volume of food, our macronutrients, so perhaps needing more carbohydrates in that luteal phase. Perhaps we actually don't recover from exercise as well, so we're better off doing low intensity, more yogas and walking, whereas in the follicular phase we can do our F45s and we can do a bit more fasting and we can do a slightly lower carbohydrate approach if that works for us. So it's always going to be really individual. Um, but yes, as a general rule, we want to be more mindful of what we're doing in the lead up to our period. So in that luteal phase, and it's nice to know that, right? Because then we can workshop how we're feeling. We can start to pay attention. I am really hungry, or I do need more carbs at this time of the month and being okay with that rather than it being like, oh, but I'm, you know what, stressful and, and ignoring these symptoms, these signs that our body is like screaming from the rooftops if we just listened, right? 
I love it. I love I love the menstrual cycle. As soon as I started mm. learning about it in Ayurveda, I was like, I remember my teacher said like, the menstrual cycle is the greatest gift to a woman, and I was just like, whoa! I was like, because we were seeing it as like, even as us males growing up, it's like it's a burden, it's it's dirty, but like it's this powerful hormonal cycle and this purification mostly on a subtle like in everybody it's this subtle purification of emotions and deep traumas and stresses and it's so powerful you just want to leave you know be inward as a woman and allow that to happen and mm. and then extending it beyond just the, the whole cycle it's it's so fascinating and i want to just add as well although you said you know follicular stage to, to maybe perhaps fast then but but the period to particularly rest maybe not the f45 during the period is is what i say and and even as well with the eating you know if you you want to eat eat that's true right so maybe you only have one week a month right if your period's going for four or five days and you're going to be ovulating on day 14 then there's actually only a really small window isn't there so that's a a very good point of clarity that perhaps we do need to be a lot more mindful of you know what our primary goal is and remember your you know your period is not just about having babies it's that beautiful monthly report card that is telling you a lot about you know that either what you're doing is working or that perhaps you need to make some changes. Absolutely. And also I want to add, even throughout the whole, that doesn't mean you have to eat in your second half of a month like a lot. Like even in Ayurveda, it, it says actually the ideal metabolism is is really two meals a day is what mm. we should be eating. I think three, is, that doesn't mean you, you, you can eat a third time, but it not should necessarily be a meal, like maybe a hot cup of milk or something. So you you can get to what i want to say is to not just think okay second half a month i have to eat a lot like you can get to the stage where you're metabolically comfortable it's so comfortable for you it feels natural to to eat less than perhaps the standard current i know but how how overwhelming is that for someone to hear for the first time like i'm sure you've experienced it so many times because we're in a culture where we have breakfast, lunch, dinner, two snacks, dessert. We eat all of our food in the evening and then we try and go to bed. Like we have done so many things upside down and back to front in the West and there's so many Ayurvedic concepts that I love and teach anyway even though I don't see them like on a day-to-day basis as being an Ayurvedic lens but like all the digestive fire principles we would teach all of our clients especially those with any gut symptoms, dysbiosis, intestinal permeability, and then coming back to dinner being that smallest meal of the day, like that classic saying, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper. It might be slightly different in Ayurvedic with lunch being the bigger meal, but the point is you just don't need that many calories at night. You're about to go into a rest and repair phase. Exactly. And yeah, I love these first simple steps because that's really how you start. If you want to engage in perhaps quote unquote more advanced fasting practices or extending your fasting period, like when you do those fasting periods, it should be easy. Mm. It should not be a strain. And it starts with removing these snacks and nighttime. Yeah, beautiful. You mentioned myths and what was the myth you mentioned? Oh, yeah, Calorie. it was the snacking. It was uh, the snacking. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think like, like let's explore that myth a bit because from what I've learned, it, it, it kind of stems from bodybuilding a lot. Like bodybuilding tells you to eat six times a day and um, 
I don't know, it's something, it somehow reduces, increases the tone of your muscles or something. <laughs> but- <laughs> no, I think it comes down to, yeah, definitely bodybuilding, certainly the gym environment. I think what it's looking at is that obviously when you're eating, your body is burning calories. So if you're eating regularly, you're burning more calories as well. So you're speeding up your metabolism. But think about what, what the calories are. The calories that you are burning are your food. And certainly if you're following a more standard approach, well, it's going to be carbs with every meal because that's how we've been conditioned to eat with our toast or cereal, our muesli bars, our sandwiches and, you know, our pastas and crackers and things like that. So, you know, when we understand the metabolism, we look at this dual fuel system. So, yes, we can burn carbohydrates, we can burn muscle glycogen, but what we really should be doing is teaching our body how to access our fat stores, these beautiful anti-inflammatory clean fuels that actually allows us to burn fat for energy. So that can be for fat loss, but it can be clearly for clarity and to, to allow us to have optimal function, to remove our obsession with constant eating, to balance our blood sugar. And then, of course, you mentioned things like cancer. Well, of course, that's where we've got to create that that beautiful environment free from oxidative stress, which you cannot do if you're eating frequently, if you're eating too many carbohydrates, if your metabolism is just constantly chewing up what you've put in two hours ago. So it's this dual fuel system. And I think, you know, with fasting, obviously any degrees of that starts to work on teaching your body to burn fat as fuel. And that's what most people then tell you, how they're feeling so good. You know, it's not only their digestive system that is is resting for the first time in a long time, but it's the clarity that they have and it's the blood sugar control that they have and the cravings that have just disappeared. Like there's so many immediate benefits that you experience, but then the long-term health and obviously longevity benefits that come with that are just incredible. Yeah. And mood stability is a Mm. big one. Uh, So, and I want to just, I I had some sympathy for those who were listening to this and feeling, but am I going to be okay? Like without food, like I, like, or, or even like, I love food. Like I want this food as fuel, but I want to add like this fat as fuel is actually beautifully nourishing. Like, although it's your own and perhaps you're not tasting it in your mouth, your body is just burning its own fat. It's actually a very nourishing, invigorating source of fuel. So it's not like your life's boring if you're only eating twice a day, no snacks, like you're tapping into another source of nourishment rather than Mm. from the palate. So I invite people to, yeah, explore. I agree, but you probably have the same experience. It's like when someone hears that they only need three or maybe only need two meals a day, they almost fall off their chair. Like, again, we've we've been conditioned to, we've been told, we've grown up this way. So unless you do it firsthand, it's hard to believe that it can be so easy, but it's obviously the adaptation period that we have to go through. There's the concept called that metabolic gray zone where, of course, like if you've been eating every two hours and having a lot of refined carbohydrates, well, you are going to have to adjust to the opposite of that, aren't you? Especially while your metabolism shifts gears. So 
for some people, it can take a week of them feeling pretty ordinary, tired, you know, cravings, headaches, withdrawals, and these sorts of things. I'm not telling you that to to send you away. I'm showing you that if you get those symptoms, that's actually a huge red flag that, you know, you needed it. You needed to make that transition away from that sugar burning metabolism. And I think, you know, I like food, like I'm a foodie. I think it's really nice to enjoy, but we have so much more to do and to offer the world than to be that excited about a meal every couple of hours. Like to me, that just feels like what a waste of our time. If we're having to stop and eat so often, we could be doing so much more and changing the world if we had this metabolism that we weren't bound by every two hours. It's kind of like if you're eating less, like, and if you're eating like once or twice a day, not that I think everyone should, but you almost like look forward to that even more. It's because like, Mm. well, for me, I'll just say like, I mainly only eat lunch. Sometimes I eat dinner, but like my lunch is like me and my partner, we both, we, we honor it. We put a lot of energy and it's like schedule it in always. We don't miss it or neglect it or come to my lunchtime. We're like, what are we going to do for lunch? Like it's it's a lot of our energy and, and it's so much love. So it kind of enhances that more. And then when the nights we do eat in, it's like, <laughs> like not as much of that love. It's, uh, mm. it's yeah, but totally where you're at and slowly. Like if you're eating every two hours, don't go to don't even go to three meals a day, no snacks. Like stop with the nighttime snacking slowly bring it back so naturally comes um i one of my questions was you for you was a bit of a i don't know might be a deep topic for you but it's it was the the top three biggest myths of conventional diet and perhaps one of your or what are your top three biggest myths perhaps one of them was what we just spoke about that you have Mm -hmm. to eat every couple hours yeah i think that's one that everyone's heard you know ask a room who's heard that myth and you'll see nine out of ten hands go up for sure. So we've definitely covered that. Yeah, I think the one that is constant is a calorie is a calorie, which is obviously a myth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, it's more complicated than that because what I'm trying to say is going back to that example I gave you around, okay, so sit down to 100 calories of broccoli or eat 100 calories of Alan's snakes and tell me how you feel. Like end of story really. Right, yeah, anyone, yeah. you don't need a degree in anything to have a think about, okay, they're very different in terms of what they're offering me in terms of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, fibre, life, life force, you know, all this sort of stuff that we think about when we see beautiful food like broccoli. You can't distill nutrition down to, okay, if it fits your macros or eat 1,200 calories a day and therefore you can eat anything that's why the weight watchers point system is just another example of that because people save their points to eat a chocolate brownie and they're undernourished and they've got nutrient deficiencies and the psychology of their sort of disordered food relationship perpetuates right so there's a lot of examples and i mentioned if it fits your macros because the world has obviously gone just from worrying about 1200 calories or x number of calories to now okay well you need X percent carbohydrate, X percent protein, and X percent fat. But then people will still find a way to manipulate that to eat pizza and chocolate and not nutrient-dense food, right? So if we put most of the numbers aside, like you said, and we just focus on the food quality, 
local, seasonal, warm, fresh, you know, then we haven't mentioned a number at all. But I also find that people do want more information. So you want to find that sweet spot when you're educating someone in terms of what level of detail they need. But we cannot be saying that all calories are equal because they're not. Do you also find that with micronutrients like vitamins and minerals? Because I never studied that and I never really paid attention to it until I guess more recently. But like, for example, I'm doing this research project on what leafy green has the most iron Mm -hmm. because I want for vegetarians to to, know. But it's like, how can I like, yes, moringa is the number one and then there's amaranth leaves and then there's spinach and then there's, but amaranth leaves is it like is it wild foraged or is it grown like conventionally like Mm -hmm. that that, i think there's just yeah this trying to go beyond this reductionist approach of counting nutritionists and just like where's it grown is it local when how how long ago was it picked before you're cooking it like so this but it's true how do we really know how can we look at Mm. two oranges and say okay they both have the same number of milligrams of vitamin c or one of the examples i think about a lot is brazil nuts because in in an ideal world if someone's needing more selenium because of their thyroid and i can hand them five brazil nuts a day great but i can't pick up that packet of brazil nuts and that packet of brazil nuts and promise you they've got the same number of milligrams of selenium that's not how it works it's different soil quality like you said like so many different factors so yes yeah yeah it's about putting the numbers aside i believe no that's a good one and yeah so what would maybe your third biggest myth oh the third one is that saturated fat causes heart disease for sure yeah which some, I mean, which which some have said, many doctors are respected. They say that's the biggest myth in medical history. Yeah, oh, it will be. Huge. It will go down in history as the biggest blunder. Absolutely, and it's a long story. I talk about this a lot, but if we have time to cover the the research, we look at Ansel Keys back in the fifties, who did a study which is famous famously called the seven country study but what he actually did was look at 21 countries and then cherry picked the data which took seven of those and found a correlation when saturated fat intake went up so too did heart disease but that that actually was obviously not science you can't just pick your data and throw out two-thirds of it and we famously know that correlation doesn't equal causation there was so much more going on at the time But Ansel Keys was very influential and paid his way into the nutritional guidelines. And you can read Good Fat, Bad Fat, uh, pardon me, Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Torbs for like the entire history of that. But unfortunately, it's one of those myths that just isn't dying. Like it's just taking so long. And I can't help but sort of blame the Western medical system because we still hear to this day patients going in to get their blood test results, getting a high total cholesterol and being told not to eat eggs or not to have butter or to cut the fat off their meat or to avoid X, Y, and Z, depending on the the dietary preferences. It's actually truthfully embarrassing to hear things like that because it really highlights a lack of understanding of cholesterol metabolism. Cholesterol is vital. Without it, we would die. It is a huge component of our brain, our cell membranes, all hormones, we can't be avoiding saturated fat and avoiding cholesterol 
And then we need to understand what actually causes a lifestyle disease like heart disease. Well, it's inflammation and it's fructose and vegetable oils, really, if we distill it down to what the root causes are. So one day, hopefully, (laughs) when a person goes to see their doctor for their blood test result, what we should be looking at is, all right, let's test for inflammation because we know that's associated with most, if not all, lifestyle diseases that are largely avoidable. And then our recommendations should not be to avoid saturated fat, but to avoid fructose and vegetable oils. I can't wait for that day. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. How it will manifest that day, I'm not sure because yeah, we we did a podcast episode with Dr. Johnny Bowden, I think on number 52 called The Great Cholesterol Myth mm-hmm. and we did a dietary fat overview and yeah, it, it's just as you said, it's the dogma is just so thick. That's why today like <laughs> I'm sure you get like you like you said you get a client in and they're saying, "But my doctor said this is bad." Like, "Oh yeah. Come on, like you're a doctor, you've been a doctor for decades." Like There's no excuse now. Like I I can forgive someone in 2009, 2011 if that was going on. I still remember the first time I shared this on Facebook, getting abused, attacked, criticised, like it was sort of next level bullying because it was felt like it was the first time people have heard this. But it's the year 2022 and people still haven't done any additional reading or training. Like there's no excuses. Total cholesterol should not be a measurement of any kind of health parameter, there's so much more to the conversation when we're looking at a lipid panel. Mm. And, of course, you know, it's only one part of the equation because it neglects to look at inflammation, which has been proven time and time again to be the root cause of, like I said, most if not all of these avoidable lifestyle Western diseases. Yeah. What are your some some of your favourite fats and that you personally like and use? I really like coconut oil. I think it, it suits almost everyone in terms of like you know, if you're vegan or vegetarian, because some of the options I mentioned before obviously would be excluded for those dietary preferences. It's beautiful in terms of the MCT value to so those medium chain triglycerides, which are wonderful fuels for brain and for clarity and for performance. But it, it is one of nature's incredible antimicrobials. So that's why you do the the oil pulling because you get the bacteria out of the mouth in the morning when you wake up by swishing the coconut oil around upon rising. But we can also use it in protocols to rebalance the microbiome because of those antimicrobial properties. You put it on skin rashes and you tell me what it does. You know, it's very powerful. Yeah, yeah beautiful, versatile oil. So you're a mother of two. Have you, you know, in your journeys of, preconception but i guess more so pregnancy because that's where there's more regulations or or dietary advice from government bodies and public health how first of all how strong and prevalent is dietary recommendations from public Mm -hmm. health for society in their pregnancy and how i don't know bs are they (laughs) or how many myths are there (laughs) in that area but, but are they even prevalent? Like uh, you get pregnant, you see, you go to the hospital, maybe you personally, I don't know how much you went to hospital while you were pregnant or for checkups and never. stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> Never. Great. I love it. Pre- pregnancy but- is not an illness, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't get any any scans? Oh, I had, well, I've had a, a couple okay. of scans, but you don't go to hospital for that. So yeah. okay. um, 
So my experience is different because I have had two midwifery-led home births, so it's quite a Beautiful. unique experience compared to the um, to the majority and certainly the women that I work with. However, to answer the first part of your question, I think what the common kind of chain of events is um, a female is either planning to conceive or already pregnant and is going to the doctor and the nutritional advice is to hand them a piece of paper with a list of foods to avoid. And that's kind of the end of the story. Now, if we look at almost all those foods, we can unpack them, but some of the common ones that are on that list are things like runny eggs, raw fish, organ meats, and then there's that conversation around kind of salad bars as well. These are the common sort of areas that we look at. Now, I firstly think that approach is very fear-based. Here's what you can't have. No discussion around like key nutrients, what you should be eating. Like pregnancy is so much more than just folate, right, than just being told to go and purchase Elevit, which is another conversation in of itself. So I don't like the fear-based model, but I would also then argue, well, then don't go to a doctor if you're expecting nutrition advice, right, because we all know they've got maybe 30 minutes to an hour of nutrition training. No disrespect, that's a fact in terms of what their degree entails. So perhaps we should only expect that. However, as I'm really focused on the science, I've taken a very close look at a lot of these myths and I can tell you what the risks are. However, what I will say is that I'm probably a more risk-adverse person than many women are and certainly women that are in their first pregnancy and especially those that have had any fertility challenges. So I can explain what I have done, but I also understand if if other women decide to do things differently and are more risk-adverse, no judgment there. But the first one that I mentioned was the runny eggs, and this comes up quite a lot because of that whole salmonella conversation. And so essentially if we look at the literature, there is a, a small increased risk of salmonella, but really only if we're looking at low-quality cage farmed eggs. So if we're looking at high-quality, organic, pasture-raised, free-range, well, the odds that an egg contains salmonella are between 1 in 12,000 and 1 in 30,000. Um, sorry, that's if that's, a, that's an egg. And then seven-fold lower if we're getting that food quality. So let me say that again. The risk is between 1 in 12,000 and 1 in 30,000, so very low risk anyway, and then sevenfold lower if we're going for organic and pasture-raised eggs, so a very, very low risk. So in pregnancy, plant foods are actually the cause of 50% of cases that present like food poisoning from something like salmonella or listeria, which we'll talk about next. So we've kind of got this narrow focus on these certain foods and my concern is is that, you know, obviously if someone does eat eggs from a dietary preference point of view, they can be a really beautiful fertile food rich in things like choline, which is important for both preconception and pregnancy. And then we look at things like listeria. Well, the risk is, is extremely rare. Now, one of my peeves in Australia in how we approach pregnancy is that we have this classic one-size-fits-all approach. So you'll hear statements like, pregnancy is this really strong case for immune suppression. 
like every single female is the same and has the same immune system and the same risk. I mean, again, you don't need a degree in anything to understand that health status is going to be the most important determiner, determiner of risk. And in the case of raw fish, I probably wouldn't eat it in Australia anyway because it's almost impossible to find wild caught. So then we're looking at antibiotic and hormonal exposure. But if you can source and prepare wild-caught raw fish, and especially if it's um, what we called flash frozen or flash freeze, it takes off the harmful bacteria anyway, flash freezing. So technically you can eat sushi. And most people have been told to avoid raw fish until like the nth degree and they get the sushi delivered to the you know birthing suite when the baby's born But if we're looking at one, quality, properly sourcing, handling and storing, the risk is, again, very, very low. Then we look at soft cheeses. In Australia, they're pasteurised. So that's heat treatment that destroys bacteria. The number of women that have avoided camembert and brie when they're pregnant when they haven't needed to is, gosh, millions, I imagine. And we haven't looked at the, the actual fat. It's it's crazy. These are foods that can be really beautiful for the right female to nourish her pregnancy. And we've had so much fear around this conversation unnecessarily. Yeah. It's getting back to that real raw in the sense of like that raw nutritional profile, you know, the unpasteurized, the fresh fish. I have to bring up folate because yeah. I, you mentioned it and I I don't, I don't know much about it, but I, I do see because I see a lot of pregnant women, a lot of them are coming on it, and I'm always like, like if if the levels are very low, you can use supplementation, but I'm I'm more for herbs and foods to trigger the body's ability to absorb the proper nutrients and also get the proper nutrients from from whole herbs rather than synthetic nutraceuticals, which can cause some strain on the liver. So. Yeah, what's this deal with every woman being put on this? <laughs> what is this deal? <laughs> like with what you said about if the folate level is low. So let's use our logic. If you have low folate, well, perhaps you might need some support. But what if you have high folate? <laughs> you don't need folate then, except we're not treating the female like the individual. We're just handing out scripts or making a blanket recommendation of one prenatal and expecting it to suit every Australian female who's about to conceive or in trimester one. Like that is not logical. So what we firstly should be doing is testing to having a look at if there is any requirement because it is an important nutrient for like basically we do it obviously in the preconception so we're not entering pregnancy in a deficient state but it's spoken about because of how critical it is upon conception for the neural tube and the nervous system and to avoid defects like spina bifida. But it's way more complicated than just taking Alivert because, of course, there are genetic SNPs or genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms where we don't tolerate something like folic acid. So it can cause issues in the way of you know general symptoms, but it can also cause recurrent miscarriages in someone with stronger genetic SNPs, and it's very synthetic, so it's poorly absorbed. 
So we can do better than that. You know, if we need to take folate and perhaps we can't do it quickly via food, well, there are forms that exist like a folinic acid or a methylfolate, depending on the genetic variation. But yeah, ideally we aren't deficient in the first place, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that perhaps we do some screening earlier than just when we're pregnant. And are there risks of taking higher folate? So I just want to know, mm. people know if they don't know, folate's a type of B vitamin. And mm, B9. Because I know like mm. with even when I see it with iron as well, like even high iron is more common, more dangerous than low iron. Yet you see women who menstruate just take iron without iron supplements without testing their levels, which is which is very risky because hemochromatosis and, and other aspects mm-hmm. is, is very uh, much perhaps more dangerous than low iron. But is is I mean is it is it risky to have high excess folate in the system? Of course, yeah. it's risky to take a synthetic nutraceutical like you were saying, but mm. to have the high levels as well. Yeah, well, you see, you see it with things like, I mean, definitely re- recurrent miscarriages, which is a really unfortunate tragedy. And the challenge, I'll come back to your question in a second, but the challenge that we see with a doctor who's really used to just the folic acid via the alivate or the fefol is unfortunately they've been trained just to read the numbers, so to look at the milligrams. And so if I've given someone maybe like four micrograms, rather, 400 micrograms of like an activated folate, the number of women that are like, oh, that's not enough. You've got to take this. You've got to take this, even though we know it's far more absorbable. But because we're so used to looking at numbers, thinking about what we're talking about with calories and things like that, yeah, we're over-prescribing it and it can cause miscarriages. It can cause like cleft palates and tongue ties and complications, which can cause issues with feeding and, you know, that that postpartum period as well. So it's really problematic. So I guess the the way to, to sort of get around this is, yeah, perhaps go to someone else for your advice. But I think do some blood work about six months before you want to have a baby. So if there are any deficiencies, you've got time to do it slowly with food, like you said, different interventions. And then maybe you don't take a synthetic vitamin at all. Maybe you do it just via like superfoods per se. I'm not um, against prenatals, but I am I'm against one size fits all, which I, I'm sure you've picked up by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, it, and that was the next thing I was going to say is even with these prenatals, which are meant to be, which are a diverse ingredient list. So it's it's like, yeah, it's just crazy how every woman, if, which is great, like they're proactive, they want to have extra support and want to mm-hmm. have this thing, but there's just like prenatal i'm doing something good i'm giving myself a boost but it's yeah not always the case okay good well thanks steph um yeah i think <laughs> we've covered some good ground and there's there's so much to talk we could just talk on different topics phases anything else you'd like to leave the audience with i think you know if we stay on the pregnancy topic just while we're here i think it's really important to, to find your tribe to get the right people around you. I think we can move away from this one-size-fits-all approach if we have our team. So it might be yourself or, it, you know, you work with a nutritionist, you might get a doula or a midwife or someone that has a slightly different approach than just our system, which basically tells you you have to do certain things at a certain week. And I have women say things like, oh, yeah, I had to do the oral glucose tolerance test or I had to take the whooping cough vaccine. I'm like, you don't have to do any of that if you've done the risk assessment, right? We're all very individual and we have a different 
risk profile and that's where we, we don't need to fend for it by yourself because no one expects you to understand all the research. But I think having the right team is really important and then learning how to advocate for yourself as well because pregnancy is that time where you've absolutely got to find your voice and maybe you need some help to find that and that's tending to be my role with women who I work with at that phase in their life. But, yeah, I think, you know, that whole concept of it takes a village needs to start in preconception. So you've got your team of people who can support you as you journey into motherhood and beyond. Yeah, beautiful. Was, uh, with so many, uh, and same goes with diseases. And if you have a disease, to, to have that good team and from then that helps you cultivate this confidence it's you wait like oh yeah i'm confident in doing my own interventions which i've learned and which my team has mm-hmm. supported me and i don't need this conventional thing which i feel a little reluctant to but i'm just going to go with it because it just i'm trying to be i want to be extra safe or i something about the conventional medical system makes me feel like some security is there but but to, to mm. claim back this confidence yeah. It's such a big thing with, we spoke all about this with immunizations and the, the, the thing of mothers not really wanting to immunize or, or rather in conventional immunization such as vaccines mm. to their children. But we talk about it with uh, Dr. Isaac Golden, who's a world authority on oh, homeopathic. Isn't he amazing? Mm. But it, I think the key thing which I see my clients is they do it anyway, although they have reluctance because they don't have confidence in their own self. Like, actually, I have yeah. the ability to, I have the tools, I have the knowledge, and I have my team to support me that I can immunize my child effectively and naturally. It's a conditioning thing. It's a really complicated topic, obviously. But, you know, if we think about the amount of research that we do about the car seat or the crib or the baby <laughs> carrier, but nobody even can tell you what's in the vaccine that they're giving their newborn baby. Like, that's mind-blowing. That's why I think, you know, we have to allocate time. We're so busy that we're just willing to be given information. It's not good enough. We have to take time in our life to research some of the most important topics that you'll ever look into. Oh, so good. So powerful. That's for another time and I'm sure you can explore <laughs> speaking about that, that aspect. <laughs> Oh, well, mm-hmm. Steph, it's been, a, it's been a delight. Thank you. If you guys want to learn more about Steph, you can check out thenaturalnutritionist.com.au is the website and The Natural Nutritionist on social media. And she's got a great podcast, Health, Happiness and Humankind. She's been in this. You've been in this health podcast game for, for a while. You, you're was, one of the early ones. <laughs> Since before it was cool, I always say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good. Cool. Anything else, anywhere else you want to send if people want to, can people book consultations with you and how else can people? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, yeah, either um, on my site, which you mentioned, so thenaturalnutritionist.com.au, myself and my team are available for one-on-one consults. You can start with a complimentary 15-minute call just to meet me or my team and to connect and set up next steps. And then, yeah, come hang out on Instagram because that's where I tend to share most things and there's a highlight section you can dive into so you can kind of see what I've been sharing in recent years and reach out if you want to learn more. Awesome. Beautiful. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Now, if you want to go deeper into nutrition, 
check out the essence of Ayurvedic nutrition. That's an online course that I created to get rid of this confusion and just to have the tool, give people, give you the tools and knowledge to be able to come across any food, herb, supplement, drink, whatever it is, cuisine, and be able to use the principles of Ayurvedic nutrition, which are primordial principles rooted in natural law, to know how to integrate that food into you, whether it's you or your client or your child or your friend. So it's utilizing foundational principles of Ayurveda based on the five elements, based on the three doshas, which are a summary of the five elements, and and based on various aspects of natural law, to know how to use a food as a medicine, to know if it's good food, to which season, when is it appropriate. So check out the essence of Ayurvedic nutrition. There's a lot of information about online. You can check it out on vitalveda.com.au under courses. And until next time, my friend, see you in another episode. I ain't going to see you, but you're going to hear me, and I'm going to feel that energy reciprocating from wherever we all are. Much love. Yeah.